Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your occasional feel-good podcast. For this week, we talk about a bunch more movies I watched while I was in the throes of horrible illness. I give some more thoughts on Elden Ring, and we talk about the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe film. That's right. The latter half of this uh, episode, basically the last 35 minutes, are me talking about uh, Doctor uh, Strange 2 and the Multiverse of Madness. Um, I give a spoiler-free review at the first chunk of that, so in case you're worried about spoilers, well then, there's there's that, so you don't have to listen to the, all of my, my wonderful spoilers. We talk about Beetlejuice, Singing in the Rain, and Ben-Hur, or the three movies that I watched, and like I said, we talk a little bit about Elden Ring some more. I hope you're all doing well out there. I am, despite what you're about to hear in this podcast, I am basically fully healed. I still have a little bit of a sore throat, but that's all it is. It's just a sore throat. It'll heal in time uh, with tea and fluids. So I am right as rain. Um, just to give you an idea of how long it was in between segments for this podcast uh, in terms of my recording it. Um, but yeah, I'm doing good. Hope you're doing good too. Let's talk about Ben-Hur. All right, I watched it so you don't have to. Ben-Hur. The three-hour and 42-minute-long movie from the 1960s starring Charlton Heston. Um, and it's pretty good. Um, it's a little long. It has an intermission in it, which is adorable because um, that just only makes it longer. But whatever. Um, if you don't know this movie or this story um you do know the story so how do i even talk about this the movie ben-hur is based on a fictional book about this made-up guy named ben-hur didn't exist um i cannot make that plain enough this is not a real person um this was a, a work of fiction uh of about about this guy who grew up um at the same time as jesus and uh, he did a bunch of stuff. And it is essentially the Moses story. That is this that is Ben Hur. If you know if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you've seen Ben Hur. They even both have chariot races. It's the same basic story. He so Ben Hur is friends with this guy named Methuselah, not Methuselah, I can't remember Methsela. Um, Melsala, I can't remember his fucking name. But anyway, they're, they're buddies. They grew up, they grew up together. Just like Moses and Ramses the second, right? They grew up together and they were friends. And fucking Ju- uh, Ben-Hur was like, hey, you know, quit treating my people like shit. Because I'm Jewish. And this is bullshit. And you're Roman. And you're an asshole. And the Roman guy is like, fuck you. You, you you're the conquered. You're, you're, be- you're beneath us. It takes, it takes four of you to equal one Roman. You know, all that fucking shit. And so Ben-Hur is like, y'all, you're all for all shit. Um, but then he gets thrown in jail for four years. Um, sound familiar? And, uh, eventually, and he swore he would return and, and have his vengeance on, um, on Rome. And, uh, he saves a Roman guy's life. And then the Roman guy's like, man, my son's dead, but you're pretty cool. You want to be my new son? And Ben Hur goes, yeah, all right, I'll be your new son. And then, and then he becomes the new son. And then he goes, I have to go back to, to back to Judea, 
because my family is there and he did find my, my mom and sister. And he goes back over there and it turns out his mom and sister are lepers. And then um, a big old Sherrod race happens and his best friend turned villain dies because he gets fucking brutalized by horses. And um, then he finds his, his family in the Valley of the Lepers and they go see Jesus and wouldn't you know it, Jesus is getting crucified and uh, that's a bummer. But then it rains and the rain washes away Jesus's blood and the blood heals uh, the mom and the sister and three, almost four hours later, the movie ends. It's a dramatic oversimplification of this film. Um, it is, it's truly epic in terms of its length and like its scale. Could this movie have been told in under two hours? Yeah, probably, but I don't think it would carry the same weight to it. I mean, this is an event of a movie, you know? Like, could I cut scenes out of this movie that are not needed? Absolutely. I could, I can make this a very nice, concise story, but throughout that, that time, you really do experience, um, Ben-Hur's, like, struggles and his pain and the acting that Charlton Heston puts forth is, is incredible. I mean, there's a reason that this is one of three movies that has won 12 Academy Awards, the other two being Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and Titanic, and Ben-Hur. Those are the big three. So, the movie's good. I don't think I'm, I'm going to blow anybody's minds by saying that the movie's good. Movie's a 7 out of 10. Um, It's a little heavy-handed. Now, this might sound crazy, because there's Jesus is, is in the movie, but it's a little heavy-handed with the biblical references. It really, it, it feels like, you know, Dante's Inferno, how that's basically Dante's self-insert fan fiction for poets that he thought were cool. That's what that is. That's all that is. Dante's Inferno is Dante Alighieri being like, hey, I love these poets from the before times, like Virgil. Virgil was dope as hell. I love this guy. I'm going to write a whole story about me and him just being bros exploring the depths of hell together and then paradise and purgatory where that's what that's what me and my my bro are gonna do he is my best friend that's what dante did all right that's self-insert fan fiction this shit is hey i'm gonna make up a new character that was there the whole time it's life of brian without the comedy and it's it's it beats you over the fucking head with it right out the gate the movie begins and it's like, in order for the census to be accurate, everybody needs to go back to where they were born. And the first fucking conversation you hear is like, name Joseph of Nazareth. Where are you going? Bethlehem. Who's that? My wife, Mary. And that's just there for the audience to go, that's Jesus's parents. Oh my God. And that happens like six other times throughout the movie. It's like, I shot Jesus when he was your baby. Although I don't think they ever actually say the name Jesus, nor do you ever see Jesus's face. You see the back of his head a lot. But even when the camera is like in a direction where you should be able to see Jesus's face, they like smudged the film so you couldn't actually see what his face looked like, which I thought was a nice touch. But yeah, there's just a fuck ton of biblical references just all over the fucking place. There's this bit where this guy shows up to Joseph's house and he's complaining because his table isn't made. He's like, where's that son of yours? Isn't he supposed to be working? And Joseph kind of smirks and goes, oh, he's working all right. And the guy just like looks around being like, like, 
but he's not working on my table. And that's what I pay you for. The fuck is my table, Joseph? Anyway. Um, yeah, it's basically the Moses story. Except Judea Ben-Hur doesn't really care about all... Like, he cares about his people and he sides with his people against the Romans. But at the end of the day, he's mostly worried about, like, his own family. You know? Like, Moses wanted to free all of his people from slavery. And this is more like... I mean, he doesn't even talk about freeing his people from, like, the oppression of Rome. He's just, like, against Rome, I guess. Which, I mean, that's fair. So he's not... It's it's like a less impactful Moses. You know? Although I suppose it couldn't be, like, too impactful. Because this dude never existed. But at that point, why fucking stop there? Why not just make him, like, the, the second son of God or something like that? I don't know. Um, what is kind of nice is that Ben-Hur is basically just a dude, right? I mean, when you see Jesus Christ Superstar or anything, or even like the Ten Commandments movie, right? Where there was an actual prophet involved or the literal son of God, uh, according to Christian mythos. Ben-Hur is just a guy. And he's a guy that knows right from wrong and follows his gut and believes in himself. And he is able to do some pretty awesome things. Like win the chariot race. So, if you look at it from that point of view, especially with the parallel to Jesus, when you have the literal Son of God, like, up the hill from you, and Judea's, uh, or, uh, yeah, Judea's still, like, trying to do good and all that stuff, you can definitely make a good case for that being a, a nice message that you don't have to be the Son of God to make a difference. Anyone can make a difference. Especially if you're Charlton Heston. Um, and people like you for a lot of reasons. So, the, the reason I watched this movie, besides the fact that it's incredibly well-renowned and it's enormously long and I've always wanted to see it and I never got around to it, is because of the chariot scene. Like, even if you haven't seen Ben-Hur, you've probably heard of this chariot scene. It took over a year to film. Over a hundred horses died making this. Only one human was seriously injured and I think it was like, he like, chipped his chin against something. I can't remember. But... They built this enormous set to actually run the chariot races. And they did that. Like, when you watch that scene, that's, I mean, it's all practical effects. It's not matte paintings. It's not miniatures. It's a bunch of fucking people and a bunch of fucking horses riding around in a chariot race. And it's pretty intense. Also, anytime anybody is under horse hooves, that's a dummy. Don't get it twisted. Alright, don't be like me who thought those were real people before I saw this scene. They're not. They're all dummies. Just just clarifying that right now. But if you do watch this movie, or even if you don't want to watch this movie, I implore you to go watch the chariot scene on YouTube. Just because it's fucking awesome. All you need to know is that the guy with the black horses is the best friend asshole. And the guy with the white horses is the good guy Ben-Hur. That's it. That's all you need to know. So, yeah... Did it live up to the hype? The fact that it was a watchable four hours, I think, is a testament in and of itself. I've seen similarly length movies that were not nearly as interesting to watch. And I'm looking at you. Name of movie escape. Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia has like two good scenes in it. And then the rest of it's boring as all fuck. This movie, I was not bored during this movie. But I think it's because I have a, like weird relationship with Christianity. Um, I was Christian a very long time ago. Um, I don't know what I really believe in now. Uh, I guess atheist would be the way to go, but I also believe in reincarnation. So 
spiritualist? Sure, let's go with that. But, like, as a religion, I was never that invested in it. Um, I never... That was that was never my jam. But as a as a mythos, like Greek mythology or Egyptian mythology or Norse mythology, Christian mythos is fascinating to me. The Bible's descriptions of angels and demons and the relationship those powers have upon humanity is just super fucking cool as a story. That's 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 my thing. So I liked this movie. Because it reminded me of just all of those elements um, of Christianity that I love from, like, a, a nerdy point of view, if anything else. Um, so I, I liked it for that. It's incredibly Christian-heavy. It's also pretty racist. Um, there is some some brown face in this movie uh, where they hired a Welsh actor to play a Middle Eastern Sikh um, who is... Uh, that's just just not good um, by any sense of the imagination. That is one thing that the remake of Ben-Hur got right, was having a racially diverse cast. Um, that was the only thing that movie got right, apparently. I haven't seen that version of the movie, but apparently it's just the worst. There's a massive box office bomb. Um, so if you're ever going to watch this movie, you watch the original, and that's it. All right? That's just, that's just the way to do it. So... That would be that would be my recommendation. Um, that being said, unless you think you'll like it, I don't think you will. Um, which is a weird statement. Like, it's very Christian heavy and it's very preachy, and it does beat you over the head a lot with Bible crap. So if none of that's appealing to you, there really isn't much else going on here. Um However, you can see, like, how this movie influences stuff, like, later down the road. Because it very much did. So, that's that's my that's my assessment. Even if you have, like, four hours to kill. I don't know. I don't know. Like, there are some classic movies that I think are... Uh, have something to offer, like, the viewer to, like, kind of take away. Um, and I'm not sure this is really one of them. Because it's a, it's a solid movie, but... I think there are other movies that teach the same lesson better, which is generally just be a good person. Um, that's that's kind of it's kind of where I'm at. So, am I glad I watched it? Yeah, I'm glad I watched it. I'm never gonna see it again, um, unless I'm showing it to somebody for the first time, and and possibly I'll just like you know take off for like that middle middle hour and forty five minutes that nothing really happens. So. It was fun. It was fun, though. I'm glad I glad I can check that one off my list. Let's see what else is next. Hello. I've watched more movies because I still feel like hot garbage. In fact, I went to urgent care earlier today because my ear exploded. Um, it's fine in its own weird way. Like, there doesn't seem to be any sort of, like, big problem. Um, I'm just classifying it as a cold gone wrong because I've had a, a quite a few things uh, occur that I've not had in previous colds. But then again, it has been something like probably like three years since I actually got sick. So dig what I can get. Anyway, let's talk about Beetlejuice because I just finished watching that like 30 seconds ago. Uh, it's pretty good. 
Um, it actually, you know what? It might be my favorite Tim Burton movie, which isn't hard to do because I don't think Tim Burton is particularly good at making films. Um, I liked this one because it had a lot of his like characteristics um, in terms of the style. And I like his style, like his art style and the way he like makes things look, I think is good. I like his style. I just don't think it goes with particularly good films. Like I think Nightmare on Elm Street is an okay movie. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other movies that he's made where I just wasn't a big fan, but I think this one really works for me. Um, it puts, I mean, it's, it's very funny. It's, it's very lighthearted. Um, nothing really bad happens. It's a very easy movie to watch, which is nice. Um, it's got Harry, it's got two Harry Belafonte songs in it. And I absolutely adore Harry Belafonte. It's got Dayo and Jump in the Line. I mean, if you know that movie at all, you already knew that it's got Harry Belafonte music in it. I don't know why they went with Harry Belafonte or why they cast Robert Goulet in a non-singing role, but they did and they did. But I think both of those things are, are fine. Um, I would have loved to hear Goulet sing. I mean, he's one of the best vocalists of the 20th century there. I said it. Um, but yeah, you know, maybe he just wanted to do a, a, a role. Um, uh, I was going to say a dramatic role, but he doesn't have enough lines in order for it to classify as a dramatic role. He's not very funny in the movie, but that's kind of beside the point. Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis do a, a wonderful job. Young Winona Ryder does a great job. Catherine O'Hare, uh, who hasn't had a bad role than anything I've ever seen does a great job. Yeah. The acting is really good. The music's really good. You can't shit on Danny Elfman. Um, obviously Michael Keaton's performance is like award winning. I absolutely love him as Beetlejuice. He is, it's like if the mask was rated R is the best way I can describe Beetlejuice. It's, it's got that random chaos. Um, and there's this bit where he's like yelling at him and he kicks over a tree and he goes like, nice fucking model. And he grabs his crotch and it makes the, like the clown like horn sound, which I thought was fucking hilarious. Um, I like the depiction of the afterlife. Uh, and this, this, it's actually pretty similar to, um, remember that scene in Coco where they have like the, the guy they have to talk to, like the, the clerk, um, has that sort of uh, feel to it. And, uh, I thought that was, that was pretty good. Yeah. All in all, it's a pretty goddamn good movie. It's short, it's sweet, tells its story and gets out hour and a half, like on the wet side. I think it's like an hour and 24 minutes, like in reality, but it was, it was, it was pretty good. I'd give that a solid, hmm. Now, see, if I give it a 7 out of 10, people are going to be like, you really thought Beetlejuice was as good as Ben-Hur? Um, you know what? I, I think I'm going to stick to that. Yeah, I think I would say out of my enjoyment level, they're probably equivalent. I enjoyed Beetlejuice a little bit more because it took less time of my life to see it. So there you go. Like, next two movies I wanted to talk about are the two movies I chased Ben-Hur down with. Ben-Hur was like a big fucking meal of a movie. You know, you just you, you needed something lighthearted and mindless to follow it up with. And so I watched a very Brady movie and a very Brady sequel. And if you don't know those movies, they are spoof movies on the Brady Bunch set in the 90s. Um, essentially, the gimmick, right, is that the Bradys are stuck in the 70s. Um, and everybody else has progressed forward in time, you know, like normal people would. And so that's the basis for like 90% of the humor. And what I particularly love about the first one is that not only are the Bradys themselves dated... But the 90s aspect of the movie is also now dated. Because, like, when you're with the Bradys, the, the 70s mentality is cranked up to 100. But when you're not with the Bradys and you're in the 90s, 
that aspect is also cranked up to 100. And so watching the movie now is particularly hilarious because the movie itself is dated whilst it's mocking dated characters. And so it's got this whole new level of like meta appreciation that I think is wonderful because you get to mock both time periods while one time period is mocking the other time period in the movie. It's a really weird experience. Um, and almost unique. I can't think of another movie that really does this. You know, there's a lot of movies set in time periods, but not a lot of movies set in a time period making fun of another time period where the time period that the movie is set in is now in and of itself a mockable dated time period. It's fascinating. Um, that being said, the movie, the first one's not very good. Um, if you don't have to have seen the Brady Bunch, like original show in order to appreciate the show. Yeah, there are a couple of like kind of deep cut jokes that you might not get if you never watched the original show. Um, especially with some of the cameos, but you could probably put the pieces together. Like the movie makes a really big deal and there's a lot of dramatic zoom ups on like original cast members who returned to be a part of this movie. Um, like Florence Henderson is the grandmother end of the movie. Uh, Alice, the original, uh, maid is the truck driver in this movie, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the first movie is, it's okay. Um, it's more of like a high school movie than anything else. Like these kids just trying to fit in and 90s culture and obviously they're not. And pretty much everybody in this movie is horny for the Bradys. You either have like classmates who think they're attractive or you've got the MILF neighbor next door who wants to bone the Brady boys. Um, and Mr. Brady, you know, she just, she's not you know picky. Um, so that's, that's a thing. The jokes themselves are pretty funny. And I think, I think the first one probably gets like a four or five out of 10. Like it's not a good movie objectively. Um, but, or in my opinion, it's not a good movie, but it's still an entertaining movie to watch. Even if it's not very good. The second one on the other hand is a good movie and is much better than the first one, despite being like more negatively reviewed than the first movie. It's got more jokes. Um, they take the, the whole like Brady's out of time idea and instill it in a character before it was spread across multiple characters in this kind of society level of judgment against the Brady's. But the second movie gives us the character of, I forget the character's name, but it gives us Tim Matheson who, uh, pretends to be Mrs. Brady's former husband in order to get a $20 million horse from the Brady's and sell it to this guy in Hawaii. Um, and having him be the straight guy to the Brady's comedy is what makes that shit work. And that shit is really funny. There's also a couple of subplots that I really enjoy in the second movie. Um, but before I forget, there's a great subplot in the first movie where Jane is insane um, because everybody loves Marsha so much and she gets constantly dumped on that she has like schizophrenia. Um, and she hears like voices in her head and RuPaul is the guidance counselor and RuPaul is in there and be like, do you hear those voices now, Jan? And Jan's like losing her mind, um, because of the jealousy, which I think is fucking phenomenal. Um, and some of the, the dry humor against the Brady's in the first movie is just spot on, particularly when it comes to the neighbors. Um, so that aspect of the first movie is great. The second movie has this fucking great subplot where, um, because the original husband shows up. Um, I forget their names. I think it's Greg and Marsha, like the two oldest ones, right? Um, have this weird, like, you know, we're not brother and sister anymore. And then they're like attracted to each other. And it's like this really funny, like, is it incest kind of like humor to it? Um, and it always has this fucking like 
like 70s slow jam song that comes on whenever they're like making eye contact um and it's fucking hilarious because they're always just like oh man i don't know it's just it always makes me laugh like really hard and then there's a lot more digs to the original series uh like there's the scene where their dog tiger shows up and tiger runs around the outside of the house and this little kid chases after him and some of the kids are like cousin oliver no and you hear like a car screech and a thud as cousin oliver is hit by a car and they just shrug their shoulders and go oh well he's dead um, I thought that was great. So the second one is better. It is a better movie. That's like a six out of 10. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Um, they're both like together. I'd say they make a very entertaining double feature. Um, I don't think you need to have seen the original show. I think it helps having at least a basic understanding of what the Brady Bunch was. Um, but I think the situational comedy and the jokes land without that pre-existing knowledge so that's that's also about those movies there is a third one the brady bunch goes to the white house but that was straight to uh, excuse me that was straight to dvd and uh they recast like everybody except the mom and the dad so i don't think it's gonna have the same like impact as the first two do but those first two are pretty damn funny so i would uh I'd recommend it. All of those things that I just watched, all, all four of these movies, Ben-Hur, Beetlejuice, and the two Brady movies are found on HBO Max. Um, and now I'm going to watch something else. I'm not entirely sure which one yet. I've got a, I've got a quite a laundry list of things to kind of plow through. So let's see what, what comes uh, next on the chopping block. I always said it was a good movie. And it's not that I didn't believe him. I just never got around to finally seeing it. And now I finally have. Um, although that being said, singing in the rain did seem familiar to me as I was watching it. So I think I must've seen it when I was incredibly young. Cause the, the plot point of like having, uh, Debbie Reynolds sing over whatever the fuck her name was, um, that was familiar to me. So I'm pretty sure I've seen this movie before, but you know, I only remember like the last five years of my life. Anyway, singing in the rain, Gene Kelly, um, Debbie Reynolds, whatever the fuck the other guy's name is. I want to say Danny Kay, but it's not Danny Kay. It is, I want to get this right, because he was pretty much, uh, Donald O'Connor was, was the other male lead. Um, first of all, let's just get this out of the way. This is a 10 out of 10 perfect movie. Um, there are elements of it that I don't like. However, there are elements of it that are above a 10. So it cancels out and balances out to be a perfect movie, which I know is kind of weird, um, like for example, the, the, the song that Gene Kelly sings on the soundstage, um, I thought was a little long. Um, and the dancing sequence at the end, um, with like the whole Broadway thing, uh, again, was a little long. So there's some pacing issues in the film that I wasn't a complete fan of. Um, so that brings it down. However, some of the dance choreography, the choreography for make them laugh has to like, if, if I went down musical theater and I ever wanted to go to Juilliard, fucking Donald O'Connor probably would have been my muse. Like, that dude, every line out of his fucking mouth was perfect. They were snappy. It was funny. It was witty. The movie was hilarious. It was incredibly well written. Um, and it was written by Adolph Green and Betty Comden. I guess this was back in the... No, actually, no. This came out in 52. Um, although I imagine he was born before 52, so he was born in a time when it was okay to be named Adolf. Um, not so much anymore. 
Gene Kelly, and I want to say this as well, even if the rest of the movie kind of sucked, I would probably give it a perfect score based on Gene Kelly's smile alone. That thing is should be made illegal. It, it's so fucking charming and charismatic. That simple smile. His eyes crinkle in just the right way. He has this ability to smile and show like all of his teeth without it being creepy. This dude is fucking... Wow, just, I can't get over that smile. I haven't seen a smile that good since Dennis Quaid in The Parent Trap, where that smile was so powerful in that movie that he was able to convince his ex-wife for them to get back together simply by smiling at her and walking slowly across the room toward her. And she, like, talks herself out of her own argument just seeing that fucking perfect smile. There's just, I don't know, it's, it's fucking, there's something about it. It's damn impressive. Music's pretty good. There were a couple of songs that I wasn't the biggest fan of, but Make Them Laugh, Singing in the Rain, Good Morning. Like, these are classic musical standards. This is the king of musicals and movie musicals. Like, I've seen a lot of movie musicals. I've seen every Disney animated movie there ever is. There are songs that I enjoy better in other musicals, and this musical definitely has some songs that I will never listen to again. Um, but... What I think really does it for me is that this is just such a celebration of movies. Um, and the story was was excellent. Let's talk about that a little bit before I get into that kind of like what I really loved about this. Um, so uh, Jean Kelly and uh, Jean Hagen, I think her name is. Is that who it is? Who the fuck played Zelda whatever? Um, uh, Lena Lamont. Yeah, Jean Hagen. Um, she is... Uh, She's got this Harley Quinn-esque voice, um, and she and Jean are silent movie stars. And then throughout the course of the film, the jazz singer comes out from Warner Brothers and invents the talkies. And so this studio, Monument Pictures, needs to make their own talking movie. But because the leading lady sounds like Harley Quinn, it doesn't fucking land. She sounds terrible. So they get Debbie Reynolds to come in and be her singing and speaking voice, and they tape over her, which is pretty creative for the time like for a 50s movie to kind of piece that one together uh i thought that was that was really smart um and then uh fucking gene Hagen basically becomes the villain and she's just like i'm gonna have debbie reynolds sing for me till the end of time and she won't have her own career and they pull a switcheroo on her which was hilarious uh and she gets hers and then the movie ends and it's a fucking phenomenal movie um, the acting in it is, is incredible. It's very funny. The dance choreography is next level. Um, the charisma between the, the lead, um, actors, Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds is, again, you can't shake a stick at it. Um, Donald O'Connor is my new creative muse. But I think the thing that really sold me on it is because it's such a love letter to Hollywood, this movie didn't hide how it was made at all. Um, there were so many sequences in which, like, you could see, like, the conveyor belt on the, the ground of, like, in Gene Kelly's Broadway picture, and it's because, like, it's supposed to represent, like, a Broadway theater, but it's still showing you how they did that. And there's a lot of elements like that, especially, like, the big soundstage scene, like, how, how it's all, like, lit up, and the different props, and the ladder, and all that stuff, just, like, making these, these nods and homages to... Hollywood in general through the musical itself of Singing in the Rain whilst they're making another movie musical within Singing in the Rain, the Dancing Cavalier or whatever the fuck it was called. 
Um, I thought that was that was brilliant. They didn't shy away from the actual movie making part of it. And I'm sitting here being like, I would love more movies to do that. Because I don't think it takes away from it. Like, we spent so much money hiding the wires and, like, like kind of burying the practical art of movie making in the special effects nowadays. They didn't have that shit back then. They didn't have that option. They had to practically do everything. And I can't even fathom how many fucking takes it may have taken to make this goddamn movie because... I mean, you you watch it. How many steady single takes there are for those dancing numbers? Like, the camera's like moving from side to side, but it's not multiple cuts. It's not multiple takes. They just did that. You had to get that shit right in the first take because that's how movies were made then. And it's just incredible for, for them to nail it so fucking hard in this movie. It is, it, it kind of, kind of blew me away. Um, I was not expecting to like this movie as much as I did, and uh, I can see why it has gone down as being one of the one of the best movies ever made. It's easily the best movie I've seen, and I've seen a lot, or not like totally, but in the like this last week of movie marathonings, this is the fucking pinnacle that that beats out all the rest. If if there's one movie to see that I've spoken about in like the last little bit, it's this one. You gotta go see Singing in the Rain. Even if you don't like musicals, I think there's still a lot to be gained from seeing this film. Um, it is it is next level. It also might be, I need to confirm this, but it might be the first Gene Kelly movie that I've seen. Um, I don't think that's the case, but it might be. Also, Debbie Reynolds, in case you didn't know, was Carrie Fisher's mom. Um, and, of course, Carrie Fisher is Princess Leia on Star Wars. And uh, what's really wonderful about Debbie Reynolds is that when Carrie Fisher died, Debbie Reynolds died the very next day, which I always thought was incredibly sweet, um, because they they loved each other each other very very much, and that is just very very heartwarming. So Singing in the Rain gets a perfect ten out of ten for me. Holy crap! What a phenomenal movie! Insane. Let's see if we can find another one. It's just as good. I know I spoke about it a little while ago, but I wanted to provide an updated um, kind of intel piece on Elden Ring now that I have sunk over 50 hours into the game, which isn't even a lot considering the scale of this game. Um, but I, I do very much enjoy the game. However, I did hit the point that I hit in every open world game of I got tired of exploring. And... Granted, I hit it later than I thought I was going to. Um, the game works great in like little stints when you have like a couple hours here and there just to kind of pick a direction and wander off and figure out what's going on. Um, but after a little bit, I definitely got on like a um, like a main boss grind. Uh, and I somehow stumbled into like every boss that you like need to fight. Like Star Scourge. Verdon, whatever the hell his name is, uh, that fucking snake-faced monster, the God Eater in the Volcano Manor, fuck that guy, the Fire Giant, like, just on and on and on and on and on. I just kept going, and I am in Farm Azula, which I think is, like, the second-to-last location in the game, um, and at this point, I'm just, like, gunning straight up the middle, I just want to beat the game, um, and so, at the end of the day, I think it is a really good game, I think it does have 
an incredible amount of replayability in terms of like how you build your character and the order in which you fight the bosses and et cetera and et cetera. And like, I know there's a thousand and one things I never found. So there's always the chance to discover more things in future playthroughs. However, I also know that I'm never gonna do that. <laughs> I'm never gonna make a different character, you know, and like go again. Like that's not how I do these things. Um, can you? Sure. But me personally, that's just not going to happen. I'm not going to, I'm not going to boot this thing up again and be like, I want to start it from the beginning. Cause I'll, I know it all. Like I feel the same way with all the other Dark Souls games. Yeah. There's a, there's a bunch of different ways you can play those games and fight those bosses and, and so on and so forth and build your characters. But I'm going to build them the exact same way I've always built them because I'm boring and unoriginal. I haven't even changed weapons since the start of the game. I'm using the same basic katana they give the samurai at the start of the game. I've leveled it up quite a bit, um, but I'm still using that weapon. And apparently it goes to plus 25. I didn't know that. I thought it went to, I thought it went to plus 12, and then I got it to plus 13, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. But apparently it goes all the way up to plus 25. So I think that is probably gonna be my goal get my katana like fully maxed out and then just carry with that until I beat the game. Cause I think there's only like four or five major bosses left. I think there's like one, two, three, um, four, five. I think there's five bosses left for me to beat. Um, and I just summon in people like at each fight and they help me figure it out. So I, um, I love that part of this game. So it is a great game. Um, and I would recommend it if you've never played it, and I would recommend it if you've never played a FromSoft game. I think this is a really good entry-level FromSoft game, um, because of how easy it is to pick a new direction to explore and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think once it's done, I, I won't miss it when it's gone, and I will look forward to the next fun game in the echelon for me to play with, which is probably LEGO Star Wars! So let's talk about that a little bit. I love LEGO games. I absolutely adore LEGO games. Um, I remember some of my, like, most, most fond gaming memories were me in high school, and I went over to my buddy, uh, Evan's house, and we would play Lego Harry Potter, and we wanted to 100% complete that game, and we did, and we unlocked the super special level where you play as Voldemort and you go kill Harry's parents. Um, I, I think they're great. Um, when I used to do YouTube videos, I, my, my, like, backbone was Lego games. Um, because they're always quirky and fun and they're really simple and they're just dumb and awesome to, to play. And I, and I loved the hell out of them. Um, and so when the Lego Star Wars thing came out, the Skywalker saga, that was like all the Lego, all the Star Wars movies, you know, to play in Lego form. I was interested in, um, I started with my Star Wars movies, which were the prequel movies. Um, so I started in Phantom Menace and, um, I mean, it's, it's just like every other Lego game, but it's, it's very fun. Uh, they like re-recorded, you know, they got like new voice acting, um, primarily because you needed those new lines to like tell jokes and stuff like that. Um, but I thought it worked really well and, um, I, I can't wait to kind of dive into that more once, uh, Elden Ring is off my, off my plate because right now Elden Ring is definitely to kind of take in front and center of my, of my gaming. Um, but I will beat it soon and then I will put it in as a nice little case and I'll put it back on my shelf and forget it ever existed and I'll go and play Lego Star Wars. So, that's what's up. Anyway, let us wrap up this podcast by talking about a movie. What movie, you may be asking? Why Doctor Strange 
and the Multiverse of Madness. How about that? How about that for topical? I'm only a couple weeks late on this one. Um, in fact, I just got back from the movie theater about 30 minutes ago. And um, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give a spoiler-free review, after which point I'm going to spoil the hell out of this movie. But I'll give you time to turn off the podcast if you don't want to be spoiled. So my spoiler review, spoiler-free review of this movie is that it's very good. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, it was directed by Sam Raimi, who's known for kind of cheesy, schlocky horror fare. And this is very much a Sam Raimi movie. Um, I don't do well with horror, and I didn't think it was that scary. However, I am also an adult. Um, I don't think children would be able to handle this movie very well. There are a couple of jump scares throughout the film. Music's very good. Danny Elfman does a wonderful job. Um... And my score for this particular film would be about an 8 out of 10. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I, I, I loved the way my dad described it. He described this as the Halloween episode of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think that that's this movie to a T. It really is. If you think of this series of movies as like a show, this is the spooky, quirky Halloween episode. That's what this is. And that's a pretty good vibe to think about the movie as a whole. It's pretty Halloween-y. That's, that's its little... You, know, you think Treehouse of Horror, like Simpsons? Put it in that vein in your head, and that's this movie. So that's the spoiler-free review. It's good. I'd recommend it. Go see it. Um, having seen WandaVision and the first Doctor Strange movie, that's all you need in reality um, to enjoy this movie. Spoilers will now occur. And if you take off after this point in the podcast, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time. All right, let's talk spoilers. And I'm just going to kind of run through the plot of what happens in this film um, and comment on it as it goes. So the movie starts with uh, an interdimensional space fight between a Doctor Strange. It's not even our Doctor Strange. It's another multiverse guy. And America Chavez. And America Chavez is a multi-dimensional traveling she's like a pilgrim almost um she has this ability to star punch her way through the fabric of reality and travel between universes at will she has a bunch of other abilities too but that's the one this movie really fixates on and if you don't know america chavez um you're probably starting this movie being like who the fuck is this uh and fair america chavez is a fairly recent uh marvel character edition I only know about America Chavez because I watched the Marvel Rising's animated specials on Disney Plus, um, where she fights alongside such characters as Squirrel Girl and Miss Marvel and Spider Gwen and uh, Shuri from Wakanda was there as well. Um, so that's how I know America Chavez. I mean, I've, I've I have not read any recent Marvel comic books besides Spider Man, so I wasn't gonna find out about her from that. Let's put it that way. So I learned about her from animated stuff. And I do like her character a lot. And I think she does a pretty good job in this movie. But the first act of this film is all about protecting America, um, Chavez. <laughs> and if you don't know who that character is, you're probably sitting there being like, why the fuck do I care? I don't know who this person is. Why? Just who cares? Um, but she's under attack by some, you know, some demons. And um, she... Uh, accidentally star punches her way into our universe. 
Right. Without Doctor Strange. And Doctor Strange is currently chilling at um, Christine's wedding as she marries some other guy. We don't know who that is. We don't ever really find out. I think he has one line of dialogue and he goes, whoa, that's cool. And that's it. That's all he ever says. Um, and Christine goes up to Doctor Strange and, and she's like, are you happy, Steven? And Steven's like, of course. Happy as a clam. You happy? And she's like, I am, Steven. I am. I'm glad you're happy. Um, and then big fuck all Cthulhu tentacle monster attacks the city trying to get America Chavez killed. And Doc Strange rolls over and um, kicks its ass. There's a cool little fight sequence. Um, there's another thing about this movie. Uh, it's a little gory. Not like constantly, but there are definitely some kills in this movie that make you kind of sit back and go, Ho! I wasn't expecting that. That was just a... I mean, that was just more than we've ever really seen in a Marvel movie. So it, it definitely kind of kicks it up a notch in terms of, of some violence. So, including how uh, this tentacle monster uh, eventually gets it, gets God. And so he's, uh, Steven starts talking to America, and he's like, who are you? And she's like, I'm a multidimensional traveler. Um, and Steven's just like, huh. Um, and then they realize that the monster had like some, some runes on it and they're like, wait, that's not sorcery. <gasps> it's witchcraft. And Steven's like, I'll go talk to Scarlet Witch. And he goes visit Scarlet Witch in the, um, in the orchard farm. Uh, and they start chattering and gosh darn it. Wouldn't you know what looks like Scarlet Witch is the villain of this movie. Turns out she knows all about America Chavez and her multidimensional powers. And what she wants to do is go over to America, rip her powers out of her, so she can travel to a different dimension to be with her kids. Remember those kids from WandaVision? Yeah. She knows they're real in other universes. Because apparently, according to this movie, dreams are real. And they are, in fact, other versions of yourself in the multiverse. Which makes perfect sense and if you believe in infinite parallel realities like i do then yeah that's exactly what dreams are because that's the thing about infinite parallel realities your exact dreams are happening elsewhere in another reality and i love that idea because that means there are parallel universes versions of myself that are doing fucking great and I'm really happy for those guys. So, yeah, I mean, I love that, like, a movie kind of said it. Um, and that's something I, like, full-on just, like, straight up be like, yep, that, yeah, that's, pff, duh. Doesn't everybody know that? That's exactly what dreams are. Um, because that's logically, you know, I, I do believe that there are infinite parallel realities. I think that's an actual thing. Um, I don't think we're ever going to be able to cross those. However, dreams have done that and so that's the I, I yeah i just straight up i think i think that's exactly what's going on um because that makes perfect sense to me anyway um so they determine that and uh let's talk a little bit about wanda's turn to villainy so i've seen a little bit on the internet that people are just like where did this came out of left field wanda's not a villain now hold on because Wanda's been a villain her entire life, save for a handful of years. Think about it. She she grew up in Sokovia, where she was presumably a, a good person. And then she watched her parents die in front of her. And then she was trapped under Rumble for two days, staring at a missile, waiting for it to explode. 
And then she was immediately subscribed into, like, human genetic modifications to become a super soldier weapon, right? And to fight and kill the Avengers. So, in Age of Ultron, she was a villain. And then, because she didn't want to see all of humanity die, she turns on Ultron. And then her brother dies. Loss number one. And then she meets Vision, right? Uh, and then she joins the Avengers. And then she goes to Lagos and she kills a fuck ton of people. Loss number two. And then the world turns on her for doing that and starts the Sokovia Accords. Okay, got it. You know, we do all of, well, of Civil War, right? And then she fights with Captain America because she doesn't want to sign on the, the Accords. And then she gets put in a straitjacket and sent straight to jail where she remains until the end of the movie where Cap busts her out. Then she and Vision run off to Scotland and have like a couple, they have like a happy year together, right? And it's all great and wonderful. And then she gets ripped back right into the freak show and told that in order to save the universe, she needs to kill the one thing she cares about. And she does. She blows his head apart. And then Thanos shows up with the time stone, undoes her sacrifice, rips the stone out of his head, and so she has to watch Vision die all over again. And then she goes and kills Thanos. And then WandaVision kicks in. Well, not kills Thanos, but she goes and fights Thanos in Endgame, right? And she's super fucking bummed. Um, and she has this little heart-to-heart with, with Hawkeye. And then WandaVision happens, where she breaks into the sword facility and invents her children. And all this fucked up shit happens. And then Vision dies again because she has to break the spell. And then there's White Vision, who who the fuck knows what that's all about because he didn't show up in this movie and I was kind of betting on he, that he fucking did. And then she discovers this massive book of evil and just, that's it. I mean, think about it. The fact that she was a hero at all is a fluke. That was the bit that wasn't right about Wanda. Her default was always gonna turn this way because she experienced more loss, more personal loss than like any other character in the MCU. Like she lost her kids, she lost Vision multiple times. She lost her brother. She lost her parents. She was trained to be evil. Like, Wanda's fall to villainy is not so much a fall to villainy. It's a return to villainy. That's how I see it. So I had no problem accepting Wanda to be the villain. And at the end of the day, you know, she's one of those villains where it's just kind of like you look at her and you're like, you know, I, 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 I get it. You know, you know, your kids exist in another universe and you want to be there because that's where you're happy. I get it. And it's nice to see a villain like this. It would have been so easy for them to be like, oh no, it's an evil Doctor Strange and that's the villain. It would have been so easy for them to do that. But to take an established character like Wanda and make them the villain, it was nice because it really shows that Sam Raimi and the writers looked at the MCU as a whole and were like, we have a lot of established story threads. Let's start, you know, using some of them and having Wanda to be the villain makes it's pretty cool I mean they're like there's one really new character in this movie and it's America Chavez that's pretty much it as far as the greater MCU is concerned it's just America Chavez everybody else was well established in other movies Wanda is not a new addition so I thought that was great anyway Wanda wants America Chavez to get her powers so she can go see her boys 
And she goes to Strange and she's like, you give America Chavez to me and um, I'll take her powers and you'll never see me again because I'll be in another universe and problem solved. And Strange is like, can't do it. And so he and Wong and the sorcerers at Comertage uh, prepare for battle. And obviously Wanda rolls up to shop and kind of annihilates them. And it's there's a it's a pretty fun sequence. And there's this fun bit with the, the mirror verse. And I loved all that. Like it was it was very creative. Um, very slasher B-movie. This movie reminded me of a fucking Scooby-Doo episode, to be perfectly honest. It's a lot, kind of, quote-unquote, scarier than Scooby-Doo, because Scooby-Doo isn't scary, but this movie also isn't scary, but it's definitely scarier than Scooby-Doo, but not by much. Um, there's definitely some gore, there's some, like, kind of grotesque body horror stuff like that, um, but she, she breaks out. And we find out that she's using this book called, like, The Darkhold, where she can, um, like, view into different universes, and she can even, like, possess herself in other universes called Dreamwalking, which I think is a fun mechanic. And, um, in this fight, Doctor Strange and America Chavez get bounced into another universe. And it's, like, solar punk out the, out the ass. Like, bunch of plants on buildings and solar panels and all that stuff, and, um... There's a nice little uh, Bruce Campbell cameo around this point, which I thought was really cool. And uh, eventually they discover uh, the the Sanctum and they find Mordo, this universe's version of Mordo. And they go chat with Mordo and Mordo's like, God, you're the best, Doctor Strange. And he poisons the tea and Strange passes out. And then Strange wakes up in like a hermetically sealed chamber uh, next to um, America Chavez, another hermetically sealed chamber. Meanwhile, Wanda's attempting to dreamwalk her way into uh, that universe's, the one that Strange and America Chavez went to, that universe's uh, Wanda. Um, and she's in the process of doing that. And then some random fucking sorcerer runs up and stabs her book of evil and destroys the book. And uh, Wong tells her that there's actually a mountain somewhere uh, with these evil spells carved into the walls. Um, that Wanda could use to continue doing what she was doing. So she and Wong go off to that mountain and then she dreamwalks. Uh, meanwhile, back in Doctor Strange universe, um, he meets that universe's version of Christine who says that she works for the Baxter Institute. And that was one of the moments where I went, oh, because the Baxter building is where the Fantastic Four live in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so I knew right away what was coming. And I was just like, fuck yeah, let's go. And um, then Mordo's like, the Illuminati will speak to you now. And Doctor Strange is like, the Illuminati? And he walks next to some some dope-ass Ultron robots and he goes to meet the Illuminati. And this is the fan service scene. Everybody knew that when there was going to be some multiversal shenanigans, it was going to be ripe for fan service nonsense. There were so many rumors. Nick Cage coming back as Ghost Rider. Uh, Deadpool. Um, Logan showing up as Wolverine, uh, Tom Cruise showing up as a different universe's version of Tony Stark, like all these things. None of that shit was real. What was real are the following cameos. We got Black Bolt, who was played by the same guy who played Black Bolt in the ABC, the short-lived ABC Inhuman show. And I love Black Bolt. This dude is so fucking strong. And you do see a little bit of his power in this movie. And I thought it was done really well. Um, but I'll get into that in a little bit. But he, he essentially what his powers are is that his voice is so powerful. 
it can it can shatter apart planets. There's like this one thing in the comic books where he's like in a spaceship and he leans out the spaceship and he just screams and the sound wave just explodes the planet. Like it's incredibly powerful. Um, so I love that there was Black Bolt. You got Agent Carter, played by Haley Atwell, as the British Captain America who got the super soldier serum, and she's got the shield, and she had a jetpack, and that was all really cool. Um, so she was there yucking it up. Mordo, obviously, was a member of the Illuminati. Uh, Captain Marvel, played by uh, Monica Rambeau, the best friend from Captain Marvel. Um, the, 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 the one that... Um, so, like, her child grows up and becomes Photon in WandaVision. It was it was the mom of 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 that family. Um, I think her name was Monica Rambo, um, but she played Captain Marvel in this, and I thought that was a nice touch. And then all the way on the end, it was of course John Krasinski playing Reed Richards. So the Fantastic Four finally make their debut in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. At least that universe's version of Reed Richards finally made his debut. And I think John Krasinski is perfect casting. I think John Krasinski and Emily Blunt would make an amazing Mr. and Mrs. Fantastic. Um, I feel like because they did it in the multiverse, though, now that's just, like, not gonna happen. And we're not gonna get that, which does make me a little sad. Um, but I thought it was still very nice uh, that we got, like, that that fanservice-y bit. And I thought it was really cute. Um, and I loved his introduction where he, like, kind of drops in through, like, a portal that he summons. And they basically talk about what to do with Stephen Strange. Because they're like, we're not worried about Wanda. What we're worried about is you, Stephen. And Stephen's like, what? Why? And they're like, because what our Stephen did. And they're like, he's like, what did our, what did your Stephen do? He died fighting Thanos. And then we hear a voice that goes, we should tell him the truth. And fucking, dun 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 they play the 90s X-Men theme like quietly in the background but it was fucking there you can't trick me Danny Elfman they play that fucking shit and Xavier rolls on in and I fucking flip out like I knew it was gonna happen I knew it was gonna happen but I was still so fucking excited to see him there it was it was awesome it's one of the coolest moments to ever happen in an MCU movie I fucking loved that he showed up and they talk about what they did to, to fight Thanos. And Xavier even, like, broadcasts the memory in Strange's head. So he sees what happened. And essentially what it was was, like, that Stephen Strange was, like, trying to figure out how to fight Thanos. And so he turns to evil. But he sacrifices himself because he, like, was going down a dark road. And Black Bolt walks up to him and he whispers, I'm sorry. And he, Stephen's body is just shredded into nothingness because of how powerful Black Bolt is. And, um... It was, oh, it was so cool. Um, and then Wanda attacks, right? She, she dream walks into that version of herself and she attacks the compound. And so she's wiping out all these Ultron robots and the Illuminati gang are like, we'll stop her. You wait here. And they go off and to go fight, um, to go fight Wanda. I'm not going to talk too much about what happens in that fight because it's fucking great. Um, but they all get got, <laughs> They all fucking die, um, including Xavier. And I gotta, I gotta be honest. A, Xavier made me cry. He said like a couple of lines when it was like when he was just talking to Strange. Um, that made me cry because of how amazing Str uh, Xavier is. I just love him so much. Um, and two, I gotta ask this question 
Because Xavier was killed by Wanda, like, in the mental space. And I have a hard time reconciling with that. Because that was Xavier in his home turf. His mind. He is, like, the most powerful telepath the MCU, the Marvel Universe comic books has, as far as I know. Like, I know Jean Grey has, like, more raw power, but in terms of telepathy and mind bullshit, Xavier is king. He's so fucking strong that when he got Apocalypse into his own head, he kicked the shit out of him. So, I don't believe for a second that Scarlet Witch could take him out in his own head. I don't, I don't buy that. It was a sneak attack, sure, but... Sneak attacks don't work in the brain space. It's like the power of thought, you know? Like, it's Xavier. I don't know. I have a hard time coming to terms with that. So I need somebody to like who's like a big-ass comic book nerd to come at me and be like, I'm actually... I need that. I need, a, I need to know that that was possible because I don't, I don't quite believe it. I know Wanda is strong, and I know she's got a mental game, but this is Xavier. You know, this isn't just some fucking yutz. This is Charles Xavier. This is what he's good at. So, I don't know. But he gets got. And then they start running through some underwater tunnels. And there's this really nice, like, slasher villain sequence. Um, to go get this book of uh, Deus Ex Machina. Um, but when they get there, Wanda, like, destroys the book. And then she sends Strange and Christine to another universe. And she brings America Chavez back to our universe. And then she just, like, fucking sits on it for, like, 20 minutes. The fact that all this other shit that I'm about to explain was able to occur and Wanda hadn't taken America Chavez's powers yet. What the fuck was she waiting for? It's like she was waiting to be stopped. There's no reason, like, there was so much time that passed after she got America Chavez on her own and she could have just taken her powers and been done with it. But she spends like 20 minutes just dicking around not doing that. And because of that, she eventually loses. But anyway, um... I'm going to start speeding it up a little bit because it kind of gets a little draggy here. Uh, Strange encounters an evil version of himself with a third eye in his head. They have this sick-ass music fight that was incredibly creative. Um, and I loved it to pieces. That was some proper Danny Elfman shit. Um, and, but then they eventually win. And uh, Strange dreamwalks into uh, the zombie version of himself from the beginning of the movie. Which was also just some proper Evil Dead, Sam Raimi, goofy nonsense. Um... And then there was this bit with, like, evil spirits coming in being like, Possessing a dead body is forbidden, Doctor Strange. Release this corpse or you will be dragged down to hell. Like, stuff like that. And I'm like, who forbade it? Like, the laws of the universe? Who do these spirits work for? Who's that individual? That's what I want to fucking know. But we don't ever find out. But Strange goes through some shit. And, um, he eventually gains control of the spirits turning them into bat wings so he can fly over to the mountaintop. That whole sequence, by the way, was the most metal fucking shit that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has ever done. So it was fucking right up my alley, and I loved it. And then he fights Wanda, and Wong shows up again, and they both fight Wanda. Um, and they actually do a pretty good job kicking her ass. And then the zombies, Doctor Strange, wanders over to, um, to America Chavez and be like, kick her ass, kid. And then he winks, and then she gets up, and she punches Wanda into the universe with her kids and her kids are there and they fucking flip the shit because Wanda looks evil as hell and it's really sad and gut-wrenching 
And then uh, America, like, closes the portal, and Wanda's just in tears. And um, America Chavez and, like, Wong basically leave, and Wanda brings the mountaintop down on top of herself, quote-unquote, killing herself. Now, here's the thing with Wanda's death. Wow. I was really thirsty there for a second. Here's the thing with Wanda's death. It is done in such a way that you could very easily be like, actually, she survived. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we ever saw Wanda again. That being said, outside of Loki, there has not been a character death in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they have undone. Right? Like, Nick Fury came back to life in the same movie. Loki died, and then they did the Loki show, so it's like a different version of Loki. But, Kingpin and Hawkeye has yet to come back. Like, there's a couple... There aren't many character deaths. And so, yeah, you could say, like, the door is always open, but, like, Tony and Cap, dead as fuck. Like, they're gone. They're out of the series. And so, people could sit there and be like, Oh, Wanda could come back. But why? But why would they? Because what else does this version of Wanda have left to do? This was the final nail in her story coffin. And I think Wanda is dead and gone. And we're not going to get them back. Because they, they told like every Wanda story that I think needed to be told. With WandaVision and her whole character arc throughout all of the movies, she was an awesome character, and this is a really good way to put her to bed. And I think this is going to be the last time we see her. And I'm going to be the one. I'm not going to be the one that, like, oh, maybe she'll come back. Nope, I think she's gone for good. I will be proven wrong later, possibly, but I'm pretty confident in this. I think they're done with Wanda, which is fine with me. Because in order for this series to really keep going, they got to start putting some of those characters to bed. And if you think about it, that's what they've slowly been doing, right? Iron Man, dead, gone. Captain America, dead. Old man, got his good ending with uh, Agent Carter, gone. Black Widow, gone. Hawkeye, I think we might be getting a second season of Hawkeye, but I'm not entirely sure. But that one, you can fucking wrap that shit up, it's done, it's gone. Put it dead. Thor 4, you bet your goddamn ass that's the last time we're gonna see Thor. Chris Hemsworth, he's done. After this, it's over, done, gone. Out of here. Um, Hulk? I don't know when the Hulk fucking is getting his ending, but it's it's gonna be soon, and it's gonna be in a, one movie we're not expecting. It's probably gonna be in She-Hulk, if I had to guess, but who knows? But we're that, that, that one's coming. So then we move into the next round, right? Falcon became Captain America, so we're getting Captain America 4, but Wanda, like, she was in that. Wanda and Vision, like, we need to start wrapping up those storylines, and Wanda's is done. So... They, they, they're closing off the storylines from the characters from the, like, the beginning chunk of these movies. Like, Nick Fury is getting his secret invasion show, right? And then that character is going to be done. And so, they're just, like, slowly working their way forward. And it's, like, a chunk of time, right? Where, like, the last ten or so years matters. And then everything else before that has already been wrapped up in a nice neat little bun. And they're going to keep that chunk of time moving forward. So, more and more movies become obsolete. And they need to make more and more movies to keep the story going. And those characters get continue on in a couple of movies and they get tied up in a nice neat little bow and then they're left in the past so that's that's my thing and scarlet witch is fucking done and um she destroyed the dark hold in every universe and america chavez 
became a student at the magic school of uh, Carmitage. And um, Doctor Strange uh, goes out on a pursuit of happiness because he realizes that he's not happy and so he needs to figure out what makes him happy. And then um, there's a mad metal guitar sting and he falls to the ground in pain and he screams and he looks up at the sky and a third eye opens in the middle of his forehead. Just like the evil one had. And then the movie's over. And then there are two mid... There are two credit scenes. One is just some, some Yutzy stuff with Bruce Campbell and that's the one at the very end of the credits. And the other one is something I don't fucking know. So, Clea, listed here as Dr. Clea Strange, um, she is the sorcerer's disciple, lover, and eventual wife of Dr. Stephen Strange and is ultimate successor as the Sorcerer Supreme, played by Charlize Theron, she shows up at the very end of the movie. Um, warns him that his actions have triggered a universe-destroying incursion and invites him to join her in the Dark Dimension. So, that's presumably what the third movie is about. And I almost wonder if they're going to try and attempt the wrapping up of Strange's story. Um, which is possible. I'd be a little surprised about that, but it's possible. Um, Strange is one of those characters who could exist in like any Marvel movie for like a really long time if Benedict Cumberbatch was down to clown. And I think he actually did come out with a, a, a statement being like, I'll play Doctor Strange as long as they'll let me. Like, like wouldn't you? It's just free money in your pocket. So, um, yeah, who knows what that's all about. But maybe uh, Charlize Theron will be the, uh, the happiness that he's been looking for his whole life, which would be kind of... Which would be kind of nice because he's definitely not getting it with Christine. That storyline is also wrapped up all neat. Because Strange basically just goes like, we'll never, like, we would never work, but I will love you forever. Like that kind of, which I thought was pretty sweet. So it is an incredibly self-contained movie. It really does feel like an episode of Scooby-Doo. It has very little bearing on the grander MCU. Literally the only things that matter are Strange has a third eye, Scarlet Witch is dead, and now here's America Chavez. That's it. That's all that matters in this movie. Everything else that happens in this movie has no bearing on the grander MCU whatsoever. Except maybe the, just confirmation of the multiverse, which we already had from Loki and which we already had from Spider-Man. That's it. That's, that's it. That's it. So, on one hand, I love that. Because not every MCU movie needs to have a bigger bearing. Like, Ant-Man 2 had fuck all to do with the rest of the shit had nothing to do with it except the whole quantum world trap traversal because that's how they do it in endgame so that one had like more like long-term impact but we didn't know that at the time so this movie might have stronger repercussions moving forward we don't know that right now but it might who knows but i will say right now that as it sits it's an incredibly easy film to watch. There are a couple of jump scares, but they're not that bad. There are definitely some horror elements, but it definitely comes off more as cheesy and goofy. Like, the zombie is cheesy as hell. The The spirit demons turn into some heavy metal shit really quickly. So, it's it's not that bad. It does a lot with, like, tone and suspense. Um, 
that I enjoyed. So that if you're not comfortable with that kind of stuff, it, it can get a little like hairy. There's some really interesting camera work in this movie. Some of the shots that are like done and the faces and the phasing of it, shit in and out. It's like it's a really creatively done film. And it actually looks like a movie that was filmed by somebody who like really cares. You know? Like Sam Raimi did a wonderful job filming this movie. And it feels like a movie that had like character and charm when it was being filmed. Like a lot of them are pretty kind of cookie cutter action movies. Like I'm looking at Black Widow. Um, or hell, even Eternals, it's like, none of the filming styles in either of those movies are like particularly inspired or fun to look at, but this shit, I had never seen some of, some of these decisions of like cuts and fades between scenes. Like this is one bit where like ascends into like a red sky and then like Wong's face just kind of fades in out of the clouds and it moves into the next scene. And it was really creative and I thought it was awesome because I'd never seen that before. So A plus for that, um... It was, uh, it was, it was very good. And it also had Sam Raimi's other favorite thing, which is screaming women. Sam Raimi loves his screaming women. And, uh, the, the two major chicks in this movie, both scream. And they, you get that close up of them going, ah, and I just, Sam Raimi crap. Oh, also, um, America Chavez's parents are both women. She's got two moms. Didn't need to be a character trait, but I love that it was. A plus for that. Um, and I can, I, I mean, I can easily believe that that's the reason that movie got banned in like a bunch of different countries. Um, or that scene is the reason. Um, it depresses me, but it doesn't surprise me. Doc Strange 2 gets an 8 out of 10. It's the best MCU movie since Spider-Man doesn't surprise anybody. Eternal sucked. Black Widow sucked. I think Thor 4 is going to be a, a an awesome fucking ride. I can't wait to say goodbye to that character and style. Um, and speaking of saying goodbye, thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of The Going Up Cast. I will see you all next time, where hopefully we're going to talk about some other stuff. Have a good one, everyone.